Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You are listening to Missed Apex Tech Time with Summer's F1. We live F1. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and once again, we're fortunate enough to be joined by the hardest working man in tech, F1, Matthew Summerfield, a.k.a. Summers F1, assistant technical editor at motorsport.com, who has deigned to sit down and share some wisdom with us. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. No problem, Matt. It's great to be along again. Yes, well, and so much has happened in tech world since I saw you last, but it's been tough with these back-to-back races to create some time to talk about the more exciting, interesting, and important technical stuff. Yeah, there's certainly uh, been a challenging schedule this season. It has, and it may not be any better next season, as we all know. But I figure, even though I kind of want to get to the Mercedes power unit, let's talk about the DRS stuff first, because that's a big technical issue that happened, and a lot of people were very, very interested in it. And, and maybe just help understand the difference between technical infringements and sporting infringements, because there is a big difference in how they are looked at. So let's just start with the obvious stuff. What went wrong and why did it go wrong? Okay, so Mercedes essentially got dinged for their DRS slot gap. Uh, Now, basically, the technical regulations permit you to have a 10 millimeter slot gap when the wing is in a closed position and an 85 millimeter gap when the wing is open. Unfortunately for Mercedes, their wing, when it was open, was above the 85 millimeter threshold. Very, very slightly, I might add, uh, 0.2 millimeters, in fact. Um, So that is the reason why they were dinged uh, by the FIA. And it must be said that this was done after qualifying. That's a very important part that we must talk about perhaps a little bit later when we reference how uh, Red Bull uh, have, you know, been fixing their wings over the last few races as well. Um, because there's certain criteria, obviously, that the teams have to follow throughout the, the, the course of a race weekend. Uh, as I say, Mercedes had this issue after qualifying when they were in scrutineering. Okay, so they had this issue. It's 0.2 of a millimeter, which um, honestly, having seen the test, which is just basically, I think it was just a disc, right? They just shove it in between the thing. I'm amazed they could discover that it was, or discern that it was just 0.2 millimeter. What kind of benefit would that have brought them? 
Uh, the, the difference for me is that it might actually be a disadvantage. Uh, it's, there's nothing to say that it causes an advantage um, because the 0.2 millimetre is a measurement that's only over on one side of the wing. In the central portion and on the other side of the wing, uh, it, it actually met the tolerance. Uh, however, when you get to the, the, the side that failed, it did obviously measure 0.2 millimetres. Now, the other thing to bear in mind, obviously you mentioned the fact that there's a disc that's used uh, when they're doing this test it's also um, covered by a technical directive uh, whereby there's a force applied uh, to the the you know that section uh, of 10 newtons uh, so it does also have to, to cater for that as part of the test well that's interesting one one of our uh, one of our tech patrons actually would like to know about that technical directive um, when did it come about how long has it been in force and why did they decide to add a force to what was formerly a static measurement? Okay, so a few questions, the answers to which are uh, the technical directive came in in 2019, as did the regulations, because as you remember, we, we had some regulation changes back in 2019. We had a, a more simplified rear wing. Uh, we had the, the front wings change uh, with a lot of the, the furniture taken away from them. Um, and the technical directive was brought in as part of this force measurement. Um, in order to understand when it came in, if you take a look at the numbers of the technical directive, that will give you the, the, the clues to which you are looking for. Uh, the dash 19 on the end refers to the year. So it was introduced in 2019. And then obviously the, the, the numbers at the start of the technical directive tell you at which point in the year it was added. So I think was it 011? 11-19 that particular technical directive so it's the 11th technical directive of the year which means it was probably pretty early in the season uh, if not actually ahead of the season that that technical directive came into force uh, obviously that just added the force component to the test uh, to to improve the stringent stringency because we were moving to, to a new set of regulations the FIA were just feeling their way into them and perhaps needed this additional force to be able to get a good guide on what was actually happening with the DRS slot okay so let's ask this question then what are what is the FIA with this regulation trying to prevent the teams from doing how do they feel like the teams might be unfairly using this extra space to get an unfair advantage so the, the unfair advantage that you would get if you were over the tolerance by a significant amount and it was obviously linear across the, the wing would be that you would get a more powerful DRS. Now, in 2019, the, the DRS was in, improved in terms of its um, ferocity anyway because we went from a 65 millimeter slot gap, if I remember correctly, under the old regulations to this new 85 millimeter dimension. So DRS actually was made a little bit more powerful in that instance. Um, so that's what they were trying to do is basically just um, measure the difference between uh, the, you know, the, the slot gap uh, in, a, in, a, in order to, 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 to make sure that the, uh, the team were, were legal. Uh, which unfortunately they fell foul of this time around. Okay, and now you you said that um, it was a zero point two millimeter gap, and that it might have been a disadvantage. So why then was there a penalty if it might not have even helped Mercedes? The, as I say, the timing of of the particular 
failing of this test is in, is crucial in 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 the situation that unfolded because they failed a technical technical regulation, which, as we know from uh, a few races back in Hungary, when uh, uh, I went to say Racing Point, then I meant Aston Martin, uh, they failed a technical regulation when there couldn't be enough fuel drawn out of the car. So if you fail a technical regulation, technically the car isn't you know, within the scope of the rules. Uh, and that is the reason why you end up with a failure. As I mentioned earlier on, we have this situation that seems to have unfolded over the last few races where Red Bull have been repairing their rear wing. Uh, and that's been brought up by Mercedes because they're unhappy that they feel that they should have been given the opportunity to repair the wing um, under part Fermi conditions as Red Bull have been doing as well. However, the difference again is timing. Red Bull have been doing this prior to qualifying. So they found the problem between free practice and qualifying and made the repairs so that when they do get to scrutineering, they don't fall foul of the the technical regulations. Okay, so um, let's move on and get a little more technical. How does the the actuator, because I believe that's what it's called, the the doodad that makes the wings go flippy, for those of you who are playing along at home, and how does that actually work? And uh, it looks like to me always that the rear wing is split into two sections. What are those called and which one of those two is, is actually the one that, that moves and which one stays still? Okay, so the bottom of the two elements is what we call the main plane. This is the same uh, if you look at a front wing as well. So when we talk about the main plane, it is the first element in the stack. When you get to the rear wing, we then call the upper element the top flap. So you either call it the upper element or, or the top flap. Um, the actuator generally, um, well, in fact, across the board these days sits in the center of the wing and you'll see it housed within a, a pod. Um, we call it the actuator pod. They are, uh, are created as an aerodynamic fairing because obviously you're talking about a, a metal component that sort of pulls on the wing, the upper flap, the, the top flap and pulls it out and up. Uh, and so you want to fair that in. So obviously it doesn't have an aerodynamic issue Um and, and destabilize the wing itself. And um, then obviously you have furniture outboard of that where it connects to the end plate. Um, there's pivots there uh, to enable the, the wing to actually open and close. Uh, all of the teams have got their own various ways of doing that. There's not one strict way you must do it in a particular fashion. Um, you know, it's all stuff that's designed in-house specifically for them uh, in order that they get the precise aerodynamic effect that they require when the DRS opens and closes. You might hear about, you know, cars becoming unstable under braking and sometimes that can be because the drs doesn't reattach and what that means is that the airflow over the wing doesn't come back to its stabilized um, profile in order that you get the downforce uh, so as i say there's there's each team has their own specific designs around uh, the drs but they all have a very similar sort of uh, design ethos if you will Okay. And now uh, just a last question. Uh, I know that um, one of our listeners asked, you know, could it, is it possible that the freight delays played and played a part in this going wrong? But to my knowledge, we don't still know exactly, was it assembled incorrectly? Did something actually break? Because the FIA have not let Mercedes go have a look and they haven't bothered to take it apart themselves to see what actually went wrong. 
Yeah, the problem we have here is something that um, we don't see too often is that the FIA actually impounded the component. So in this case, they took the whole rear wing assembly and impounded it so that the, the team couldn't interfere with it in any way. Mercedes clearly wanted to try to evaluate that to, so they had some answers as to what had actually happened, whether it was, you know, what kind of manufacturing issue had occurred that had allowed uh, this particular problem to occur in the first place however they weren't allowed that and the FIA kept it uh, for themselves uh, until they'd actually made their decision and uh, you know come up with a disqualification for Lewis Hamilton Uh, so unfortunately we're in a situation where the FIA have you know kept the wing away from Mercedes uh, and we haven't really got an answer yet as to what happened but the FIA have aired on the side of that it was possibly, um, you know, a, a problem with one of the mechanisms failing that had caused uh, the wing to be able to be opened that extra 0.2 millimeters. Okay, so um, I had wanted to move us to the Mercedes power unit, but it seems like the way things are going, perhaps it makes sense to spend a moment or two on Red Bull because we have seen them have, as you point out, their fair share of rear wing issues although they have managed thus far to avoid being penalized for them. But they are continuing to complain about Mercedes' rear wing. And I'm curious if you have any details about what exactly it is they're complaining about, because to my knowledge, they they already have added optical dots and are measuring the deflection. That was a problem earlier in Barcelona. So do you know what it is exactly Red Bull are on about? And do you think there is anything really to that yeah i mean basically as you say we've got to a point this season where flexi wings have really come under the hammer uh the fia have put things in place they've changed the way in which they're measuring things they now have the optical uh dots on the rear wing so that they can monitor from the rearward facing camera and see if those dots are moving um you know beyond the the limits that you would expect them to uh there's obviously still some you know wiggle room in terms of being able to get some flexibility from the rear wing to be able to get that extra sort of straight line speed boost and i don't think anything that the fia ever do will stop that from happening because you can't make these components infinitely rigid otherwise they just break under aero load so there has to be some maneuverability uh in the the components themselves in order to that the, the, they just don't fail um in terms of what are they actually looking for well i think you probably have to have to ask adrian newey because i believe he was at the stewards um trying to uh to explain to them exactly what was going on uh with the mercedes rear wing itself i do have some theories um around what could possibly be being done but there was a lot of technical directives entered in uh this season to try to prevent that sort of thing anyway so essentially what i believe to be the primary driver of this situation at the moment is that if you can imagine the uh, top flap and main plane if they were to move together as if they were in a track in the end plate technically you would be lowering the incidence of these the the angles of the wings um, but you wouldn't be tilting the wing, which is what you know flexi wings kind of were doing um, up until Baku when you know the new uh, regulations came into place. 
But as I say, there's there's technical directives in place to try to prevent this sort of thing from happening as well, because in reality, it has happened in the past. So uh, it's a difficult one. I, I, I'm not sure where this will sit, but politicking in Formula One has always been prevalent, especially when you have such close battles as we're having right now. You only have to think of McLaren and Ferrari back in 2007, 2008. I think they spent more time with the stewards uh, than they did racing the cars out on track. And it appears that we're in a very similar situation between Red Bull and Mercedes right now. So whatever whatever advantage you can take away from your opposition off the track will always bear fruit on the track. And, And I think that's kind of where we're at right now. Okay, that's interesting. Um, I'm just going to close with a quick yes or no question. The last time we saw something like this happen, I believe it was post-Barcelona with the optical dots. And if memory serves, it was, what, about a month before the teams were actually required to comply with the updated standards the FIA instituted, yeah? Yeah, I mean, the, the the additional deflection tests were introduced, say, a month or, or so after Barcelona. Um, but the optical dots were something that they added afterwards. Uh, it wasn't originally intended to be added into the reg, in, into the, the test pr- regime, um, but they added them at Baku. Uh, that's when those came into place. Um, how much they're actually using them, I do not know, but they are there. Um, they're still you know, visible on all of the the wings out there. So they do have that option to go off and look at the footage. Okay. So up until the point at which this test was failed and everything changed, the start of the weekend, um, well, aside from Lewis Hamilton, had to be the performance of his car and of the new Mercedes power unit. And I know we've sort of briefly had this discussion, but I've heard I heard it referred to over the weekend as a new spec engine. And I was just wondering, like, are we talking like a Ferrari new spec engine, as in this is a new homologation? Or are they just talking about the fact that they've gone through and replaced all of the things, which is what they said they'd done outside of the homologation fence that could be replaced? Yeah, I mean, basically, it can't be a new specification ICE because you could only uh, make one change or uh, this season uh, from the original specification and Mercedes made that at the very start of the year. So yeah, what what we're looking at is a new internal combustion engine in as much as that, you know, it's the same design as the previous one. But as you say, there are certain areas um, within or outside of, in fact, the, the parameters uh, set out in the regulations that you can make changes. So, um, you know, things like gaskets and, and all of that sort of stuff. And there is... Um, some chatter around what has been done to the various power units uh, or internal combustion engines, should I say, that Valtteri Bottas has had put in, into his W12, perhaps as a little bit of a test bed um, in order to get what they needed um, to be you know, a, a very um, impressive power unit put together for Lewis Hamilton. Okay, so one of my favourite uh, things going around right now is the um, is the theory that somehow Mercedes is super cooling the air into the plenum and that that is what has given them this massive performance boost. Now, Bubbly Chunks uh, in, 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 this, in the patron group uh, would like to know what a plenum is and is that actually what you think is going on here? 
Okay, so we've had this discussion many, many times about Mercedes own being the only team in the stable, in the Mercedes stable, to use um, a liquid to air intercooler. The, the likes of McLaren, Williams, etc., don't, uh, and Aston Martin obviously don't use the water to, uh, sorry, liquid to air coolers. They use an air to air cooler, which you would know as an uh, as an intercooler. Um, so they they have a very different setup to the other teams. Let's put it that way. Uh, so they obviously can do certain things that they, those guys can't do in terms of temperature control. Uh, but what we're talking about here is the the inlet plenum. So we're talking about where you would end up with the boost going into uh, the internal combustion engine um, from, you know, this, um, depending on which cool type of cooler that you, you have. Um, super cooling um, sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? But for me, I don't think there's any particular difference um, to what Mercedes do, to what to some of their competitors do. Let's put it that way. The plenum this year is very different on the Mercedes at power unit compared to what it was last year uh, because the shape and design has changed. Now, the shape and design changes not because it's something that just looks better. Um, it has things inside it, and predominantly that would be the variable inlet trumpets. Uh, so... I would surmise that those were altered and changed as part of the upgrade to the internal combustion engine at the start of the season to be to enable them to move the the power curve around somewhat uh, and to try to get some kind of difference performance from the power unit and the internal combustion engine. So there were lots of changes on at the start of the season in terms of the plenum. Uh, and whatnot, but we haven't obviously seen anything since because they're locked into spec uh, as soon as they introduce that. Um, and as far as supercooling of the um, charge air goes, uh, there's not too much you can do uh, because of the sensors that the FIA have on board the cars these days. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Okay, so it's it's a controlled factor, the temperature of that air that's headed into the combustion chamber. Well, it's it's not a controlled factor by the FIA. Uh, there's no strict, you know, quantity um, that has to be followed. Uh, there's no strictness in that respect. But I just don't see that there's uh, there's no viable way um, under the current regulations of super cooling the air. Um, going through that system um, I know of ways to do it 
uh, but they're more road car based scenarios uh, that I played around with many years ago. Okay, fair enough. I, I was just talking about the cooling, not about the the total amount of air, um, the, because the sensors keep them from having the air. Is is that a regulation, or am I just completely off my rocker here? We, we're talking about the airbox there, aren't we? Yeah, which is a, a, a different side. Uh, okay. So the, the you, you're talking about the ambient air into yeah. the into the turbocharger, which obviously the FIA strictly regulates um, based on the temperature at track, etc. But we're we're at the other end of the spectrum there where we've already gone through the, the turbo. So we were talking about two independent systems almost. Okay. All right. Well, then, well, thank you for helping clear that up for me. I appreciate it. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is that this performance in some ways seems kind of remarkable, but they're also playing with a power unit that doesn't have to last as many races as they originally budgeted for could that be part of the performance that we are seeing i think it's a massive part of the performance that we're seeing because we have to remember that these power units needed to make 23 races at the start of this season and although we're down to 22 now rather than the 23 um, that means that they still ultimately really needed to make seven or eight Grand Prix distances um, in terms of the internal combustion engine I'm talking now because obviously some of the components in the power unit only had uh, two um, components before penalty available to them. Uh, so, yeah, I do think that it's a massive part of where we're, we're seeing the performance uh, from this particular power unit because effectively that is half the distance it has to uh, maintain in order to, to get to the end of the season. On top of that, you must also remember that this is a pool of components. So Lewis still has uh, another power unit in totality probably available to him that could be installed for free practice sessions and then swapped for a more powerful unit for uh, qualifying and the race. Uh, now we've not got any more sprints available uh, this season. Um, so, yeah, for me per personally, I do feel that there's um, a massive, massive amount of performance available to them. Uh, but obviously that comes with some risk as well, because you're pushing the power unit beyond its operating parameters um, for which it was originally designed. And this is perhaps where Valtteri played his part in having so many power units effectively chucked on the scrap pile uh, whilst they try to figure this out, how they could actually make a, a power unit um, go so deep. Well, and that's sort of interesting because reducing the number of power units was sort of a component of reducing the overall spend of the teams. And I do appreciate, by the way, not taking us on a 45-minute discussion of the um, appropriateness of the sprint qualifying in the Grand Prix weekend because I could see I could see there for a moment you were tempted there was a bit of rage about to to come out wasn't there I, I managed to hold it back though yeah no no very well very well done uh so the last issue that's come up and this is this is really an interesting one is that um Christian Horner has said that Honda only loses about a tenth of a second a lap over over its lifetime but we've heard that the Mercedes is actually degrading at a faster rate. Is is that accurate in your opinion? Um, I do believe it's accurate. Um, I, I, putting numbers on things like that is always going to be extremely difficult. But I've got a question for you whilst we're on this topic, Matt. Do okay. you know which teams can still make a penalty-free 
on the internal combustion engine. Penalty there's, free. Um, there's two. There's two teams out there that have only used three internal combustion engines so far. You know, you said that to me, and my immediate thought was prepare to look really, really stupid. And I, I think I'm about to fulfill that. I'm going to go with McLaren for one. Because to my knowledge, they have absolutely stayed within the limits. The other one, I want to say on internal combustion, I want to say Renault. Well, you're wrong and wrong because it's Haas and Alfa Romeo. Oh, my goodness. Well, there you go. Congratulations. You got me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, though, isn't it? Two Ferrari-powered teams that can't access the upgraded version of the Ferrari power unit. Yeah, it is interesting. And and that sort of neatly brings us to, to something that I did want to talk about. Um, now, I know you are not in the predicting business. And if this season has taught us anything, it's what tracks we think are going to be good for cars are not necessarily so. But that's not going to stop me from trying. So we have three tracks left. We have Qatar, we have Jeddah, and we have Abu Dhabi. And in terms of how the tracks look to you, in terms of where you perceive the strengths of the cars to be, I'm just curious if you, if you sense at the moment one team or the other might have an advantage. Like, I'll go first. I'll say the fact they're all nighttime races, I think, helps Mercedes a little bit. I totally agree with that because of the uh, the. the- the masking of their tire issue, um, predominantly, um, we've we've managed to avoid tires until I don't know how many minutes into this podcast, Matt. Um, but I've now mentioned them, so we, we've got to go there. Um, but yeah, we know that Mercedes are better in cooler conditions. So as you say, the the sort of twilight to night race scenario for them should help them out in some respects, not only from a tyre perspective, but also from a cooling perspective on, on the uh, the power unit as well. So, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go in with you on that one. Okay, the other thing that, that really I think I would like to investigate a little bit, and this is where Ferrari comes in, is in looking at the online lap of Jetta, it struck me that they spent an awful lot of time in eighth gear which makes me think that energy deployment is going to be, well, very critical at that track. Who does that advantage right now? I would probably put my money again in the Mercedes pool in that respect, although Honda have made, as we know, massive strides uh, in terms of their power unit going forward. And you have to remember that they've had their first energy store improvement since they entered the sport this season. Uh, that That's where they've had their one improvement this year is they've introduced a new energy store. Um, Obviously that has an impact on how they are able to use their ERS in terms of uh, recovery and deployment. Uh, And they certainly seem to have caught up to uh, Mercedes in that respect. Having said that, so have Ferrari. You know, they've made huge strides since they introduced their new ERS system. Um, But the, the, the problem for me in terms of ERS is that that's heat, um, you know that that does create a, a situation where you're having to think about the thermal properties. And as you say, at full chat uh, around Jeddah, um, I think a lot of the teams are going to be pushed to their limits at that track. It is going to be um, very very difficult, and at a stage in the season where most teams can ill afford to have a failure. You know, we've got two teams battling it out at the front, and then we've got two teams 
battling it out behind them and neither of those four teams can afford to have any kind of failure going into the the last few races because that just eats points away that that obviously means that they uh, they lose out to their rivals yeah they're running out of opportunities to recoup any any penalty losses at this point so um somewhat uh so one of the questions that came up from from our listeners is do you think Red Bull might reach a point in these last races where they are they will have to take another power unit to keep Verstappen, I assume, um, competitive. Not that no one cares about Perez, but he's not fighting for the uh, driver's championship either. Um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I think it all falls down to understanding where they fall within the hierarchy against Mercedes. If I, if I was a gambling man, I would actually potentially think that it might be Mercedes that might think about putting another power unit in Hamilton's pool. Um just purely because if they're going to run these this, this power unit full tilt to the end, then uh, with their degradation level, um, you know that they could end up in a position where it makes it very difficult in the last couple of races uh, to find the performance they need to 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 get the advantage over um, Max Verstappen and uh, his Red Bull Honda. So you know. <sighs> It's become a tactical side game, hasn't it, almost, in that these teams are now thinking, well, uh, let's just chuck another one at it because uh, we, we'll, we'll get a little bit more performance. But as you say, the other side note to that is that the Honda doesn't degrade as much as the Mercedes power unit um, in terms of the performance that it offers up. So, it, you know, it's a toss-up, isn't it? The last thing I personally want to see is a failure um, that... That, that turns this championship over to one side. I, I want to see them go right to the end with it. But, um, you know, it could come down to that, unfortunately. Yeah, it could. Um, so speaking of new power units, is, is, do you have a quantification of what a new power unit might be worth to a team in, in terms of just like just basic horsepower? Uh, again, it's difficult to quantify, isn't it? But it looks like Mercedes, you know, they, they tend to get a, a big shove in terms of performance, whereas some of the other teams don't tend to have that kind of big performance advantage at the beginning uh, because they've set their, their their stall out so that the degradation level is much smaller as as they go through um, the, the races with it. Um, but, uh, you know, you've got to look somewhere in the region of 25 horsepower upwards, haven't you? I mean, looking at the power performance that Hamilton had uh, in Brazil, um I mean, the the Red Bull is no slouch around that track either. Uh, we have to remember, you know, that they work well at altitude. And although it's not the same altitude challenge that you have in Mexico, Brazil is the second on the calendar. At, I think it's 726 metres from memory. Um, you know, so I, I think Hamilton could have had up somewhere in the region of maybe 30 to 40 horsepower advantage. That was just, I mean, he was sailing past people like they were stood still on the straight. So, you know, it, it was a, it was a big advantage. Yeah. Well, actually it brings up an interesting point uh, because I'm wondering, do you think maybe it's more than just the power unit, especially at Brazil where, where they've not traditionally had that level of advantage? Do you think maybe they found something set up wise that also worked particularly well with that kind of a track? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've got the, the generalised talk about the stalling of diffusers and all of that sort of trickery that people seem to be very interested in at the moment that haven't really paid much attention to it, even though it's been there for a decade um, and seven teams on the grid have it. Um, but, yeah, that you know, every little small detail counts. One thing that I have noticed is that there was a bit of a, uh, a conversation going on that Mercedes were running Monaco-level downforce in Brazil. And they were not running Monaco level downforce in Brazil. Uh, there's an easy way to tell when Mercedes are running high downforce or their highest downforce setting, and that is a double T wing on the on the rear of the car um, and and a almost barn door rear wing. And they didn't have those on the car um, in Brazil. They had their single, what I like to call Superman uh, T wing, because it's got sort of the Superman logo in the central section. Um, uh, and it was a fairly high downforce rear wing, but it certainly wasn't their highest. Um, and in comparison to to Red Bull, who obviously always run that little bit skinnier, um, you know, it might look like they were running a lot of downforce, but they certainly weren't running Monaco levels. Yeah, I was just about to say the exact same thing about the T-Wings. Just how could you miss that? It's uh, all the small details, mate. It's all the small details. It, it really is. Um. So before we move uh, on to uh, what I uh, I want to ask you about sort of the challenges to teams, because we have two brand new tracks. As far as I know, I think there might be someone on the grid who's raced at Qatar, because I believe it was a GP2 race some time ago. But certainly the teams have never been there. What are, do you know the tire choices going into the last three races in terms of the, is it one, two, three, two, three, four, three, four, five from Pirelli? And am I wrong in thinking that the harder the tire is, the more Mercedes develops an advantage from that? Um, I don't know off the top of my head is the answer to your question. I probably have the, the emails from Pirelli. So you've caught me out for once. Okay, I've uh, returned because- the favor you mean. Yes, um, <laughs> because I haven't got it to hand, but I probably do have that information. Um, in terms of tyre selection, yes, I, I would agree that Mercedes generally go better when the harder compounds are selected out of the groups. Um, and, and that is just purely because of the way that they work the tyre over a stint. Uh, they were very quick on the medium, though, in Brazil. Um, and I'm not sure which compound it was off the top of my head. I think it was C3. Um, so it'd be interesting, as you say, to see what uh, is available to them at the next three races. And that, to me, is part of the black art of these next two races, is understanding the tyres. Whoever understands the tyres the best out of these next two races is probably going to have a massive advantage over their rivals. So, you know, profiling the circuit, the the asphalt, um, and understanding just how much scrub uh, is taken out of the tyre is going to be massive in terms of performance. Okay, so let's talk about that real quick. Um, what are the what are the specific challenges aside from the tire profiling, which you just mentioned? What are the teams looking at? What is going to make having a brand new track more difficult for them than going to a track that they've been to before? And this is going to be obviously all the teams, not just Mercedes and Red Bull. 
Well, I think a lot of that will come down to the the ability to think quickly on your feet as well in terms of strategy, because when you don't have an historic profile for a circuit, you have no data to work with. So you don't understand, you know, perhaps when to uh, when the stints are running out of uh, of life and you need to, to get off those tires, um, you need to get onto something a little bit different um, to be able to extract the lap time. Um, you know, you can do so much of that in terms of, a simulation uh, in simulation tools but it's not quite the same as being at a race weekend and because we've not been to those circuits before nobody has that data uh, so they'll, they'll obviously be having to make those decisions on the hoof uh, which makes like that just a little bit more difficult okay great um the last question i have for you and this is a very specific question is and I know Abu Dhabi has done some reprofiling, but do we know, have there been any specific changes uh, prior to the Formula One returning to the track? Um, but in terms of uh, your thinking about the track, obviously there are changes to the, the track this um, coming race, uh, which I do think is going to have a bearing on performance because um, certain, well, let's say, difficult corners, corners that were not driver's corners, have been changed or reprofiled. Uh, and I think that will have a bearing on the, the tyre performance, um, not only from drivers having to learn how to operate and get in and out of those corners more effectively, but obviously the, you know how, how much life it takes out of the tyres. The, the I don't think people really kind of understand the, the job that drivers do to tyre to save. It is quite a... A, an interesting thing to watch for um you know people always talk about carting lines and lines and, and those sort of things but um you know you can see that drivers drive a very different line from time to time to be able to save on the tires fuel save you know do these sort of management things that go on in the background that are just taken for granted Okay, so before we head on off into the sunset here, we did have some questions about not just the immediate future, but the slightly more future future. And one of the ones that came up most is, do you have any idea or any notion which particular areas of the car the teams are really focused on that might be really different to what we've seen thus far uh, produced from the FIA? I assume we're talking about 22 car here. Yeah. Yeah, the the floor essentially floor diffuser that that region is going to be a huge amount of performance in it. Um, you know some of the the trinket bits that come on the front edge of the floor, like the the, the dividing strakes, um, uh, and then we're sort of into things that will be highly specific to teams. So things like side pod design, engine covers, um, cooling sol solutions, which I think could be a very interesting um, topic next year because we've got the louvers back um, in the you know sort of tail area of the side pod, which means that the Coke bottle region could effectively be so, so narrow. Um, but that obviously will depend highly on, you know, how good the power units are and all of that sort of stuff. So, but I think the predominantly the the biggest areas that that the teams will be focused on is the areas where they can find the biggest amount of performance straight out the blocks, and the biggest area of performance that they'll be able to find at the at the beginning will be from the floor. Okay, uh, along with that, we are moving to a different fuel. Um next season uh 10 percent and e10 fuel 
And uh, PJ, uh, one of our patrons, would like to know, how much of an impact do you think we will see from that shift? Um, I don't think that, uh, you know, as a perception point of view, I don't think people will actually realise that there's any kind of difference going on. Um, that's all happened back at the, the you know, the, the, man, the manufacturers um, with those guys finding the ways in which that they can still find the same level of performance from the, the power unit, um, but obviously with uh, 10% ethanol-based fuel. Uh, so, and, and I think we will we'll continue to see that as the years go by. You know, we're looking at 2026 um, having a, a slightly different framing to the power unit regulations. And and again, I believe that there will be more push towards a, a more highly sust- sustainable fuel. So, you know, there's always work going on in the background and um, they're always finding performance, uh, it, it, but it's all relative. It's not something that you can real, realistically, tangibly put your your finger on or, or see out there on the track. Okay, uh, great. And of course, since you know I love tires, I'm going to end up with a question uh, from John M. Everyone talks about needing to get tires into the window. Talking about, obviously, the temperatures, uh, tread and bulk. Um, but how big is the window? A couple of degrees, 5, 10, 20, 50? How small is this particular eye of the needle these engineers are trying to thread? Uh, well, again, it's something that can't realistically be answered thoroughly because it depends on the car, um, you know, and the set of circumstances that you're at, the circuit, the track temperatures there's there's a huge amount of variables involved in in getting the the tire into the working range as we call it um pirelli do offer um a working range selection for each of their tires so they will tell you the the degrees um that they will operate effectively um if you're outside of those then you know the, the tires are pretty much shut off and, and not doing anything but then it's a bit of a goldilocks effect you know still within that window there are areas within it that make it perform that much little better or worse depending on where they are in a stint you know because this is the other thing that you have to consider is that um during a stint the window will change because you're taking away tread from the tire, which means that that means that more heat can escape from the tire and the tread platform, which means that that window is suddenly shifting around as well. So it's always a moving target is the simple answer. There are, you know, the windows that Pirelli offer as a guidance to, to what those tires should, you know, work semi decently in, but then there are very, very small areas or pockets of performance that can be found within as well. Yeah, that was always my understanding that that there was always a sweet spot within uh, you've hit it correctly that the tires could be in. And I think one of my favorite things that I read recently was an engineer talking about tires saying we could run the exact same test on a tire five times in a row and get five different results because they're just that they're just that complicated. There's a reason it's called a black art. Indeed. So Summers. Where can we find you on social media? Where should people go look for your pearls of wisdom? Uh, well, on social media, the best place always is Twitter, and it's Summers F1. And you can find my stuff mainly on motorsport.com. Excellent. As for me, I'm at MattPT55 on the Twitters. And until next time, drive hard, play loose, and be kind to your tires. This has been Missed Apex Podcast. 
seems like I've managed to record it all, at least. <laughs> well, that's the that's a bonus. Yeah, it's it, it, it's the lowest bar I could set for myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it went okay. Uh, I I think so. I, I I think I think we got some good information. So thanks for coming along. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS. Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.